0: Last night, I've had uh, more fun than I've had in a long time, Mm -hmm. watching the Yankees lose the pennant race, and it was especially gratifying that the game ended with A-Rod being struck out. I think it's comparable only to watching the Dallas Cowboys lose or the Republicans lose an election. And it was remarked on that perhaps it's a tad unseemly for a Buddhist to take so much pleasure in watching somebody lose or (laughs) rooting so much for one team over another. So I thought I might say something about this whole realm of likes and dislikes. But more than than that, uh, something about the particular versus the universal, and how there's a kind of um, risk of pernicious universalism uh, in this practice and many practices. I think it's a insidious tendency that people have uh, to look for a kind of realization or philosophy or truth that's going to eliminate all contradiction and all conflict and give us a kind of um, universal answer to any situation. This takes all sorts of forms. Um, In the 18th century, there was a kind of faith in reason is the result of the Enlightenment and the notion that universal ideas of reason and liberty and natural rights would override (coughs) all nationalist and sectarian differences and that we would be able to achieve a kind of international sense of the oneness of (coughs) humanity. And in the 19th century there was a fantasy of Marxism that the consciousness of the working class would extend beyond all international boundaries and that there would be a universalism based on that kind of uh, economic common ground that again would override all nationalism neither of these particularly seemed to play out very well cosmopolitanism was the first coined i believe by the Greek Diogenes, the cynic, which says something there, Uh, (laughs) a cosmopolitan was someone who is a citizen of the universe rather than a citizen of any particular city, state in ancient Greece. Very radical idea that you would be from everywhere rather than somewhere. time we have more and more a realization that, like it or not, we are living in a pluralistic uh, universe with very many competing senses of the good, many competing ways of organizing a life or conceptualizing a good life. And that we can't really find one overarching system that's going to encompass all of these things without contradiction. Uh, One of my favorite philosophers, Isaiah Berlin, has written extensively about how the good it turns out to be very multiple and goods can be in competition with one another despite all our fantasies of getting a solution to our problems that will be once and for all and eliminate contradiction. Now this all can seem very abstract, but I think it's important at the level of individual psychology as well, in terms of how we deal with our own inner sense of conflict or multiplicity. Whitman uh, said something to the effect, I'm sorry if I can't remember the line exactly, do I contradict myself? Very well I contradict myself, I contain multitudes. And that is a realization that one way or another we have to incorporate into our practice, that we will contain multiple self-states and some will contradict each other. And we're going to have to find a way of encompassing that complexity and that uh, contradiction. Sometimes I hear people who are disturbed by not being able to maintain a life that seems strictly in accord with their ideals or their values, that they have an image of how they wish they were, that they can't live up to, or that parts of themselves just don't seem to fit into. And I find myself saying, uh, often, You don't necessarily, in every situation, have to ask yourself, what would the Dalai Lama do? (laughs) You don't have to uh, try to imagine a kind of self-state that is uh, free of greed, anger, ignorance, conflict, desire and preference, and somehow operate from that position. Uh, It's nice to be able to hold on to values like fairness and justice, but it's really a very bad idea to pretend uh, that you're not angry when you are, uh, that you're not full of desire when you are, that you don't have preferences when you do we can use precepts as a way of putting limits on our behavior but we have to be very careful that we don't try to put limits on our feelings and use practice as a way of um, putting a Buddhist smiley face over everything Right? be a nice Buddhist (coughs) This, uh, this runs the risk of just being fancy hypocrisy. And I think the history of Buddhism in many religions demonstrates that we, when we try to uh, maintain too angelic a facade that the devil in us will find a way out one way or the other. I think it's very important that we maintain a sense of our uniqueness and individuality and particularities, even as we have a practice and experience of oneness or interconnection. We don't want to lose either side of that. think that it's important that we always realize that our our view is the view of somebody from somewhere that it's always going to be local local to a region and local to our particular psychology and that we have to cherish and work within those particularities and not think our practice is about smoothing them all over. In one sense, you know, in a seshin or in a traditional setting when everybody dresses alike in the same black robes and follows all the same rituals, it can look like individuality is disappearing into the sameness of ritual. But I believe uh, Suzuki Roshi said it was only when there's this backdrop of uniform practice that people's individual differences become clear. And we can see how we each handle ourselves and manifest ourselves against the backdrop of a common practice. We're not here to smooth out all differences and eliminate all preferences. It may be uh, part of my particular history, growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, that I developed a deep horror of wall-to-wall beige carpeting. And really, I'm very afraid of that as a model for any kind of uh, psychology or lifestyle that eliminates uh, difference. I just start seeing beige and it makes me crazy. <laughs> um, it can manifest in particular ways. And I think, you know, one of the things I said in Sashin is, you know, I have a little collector's habit of liking unique objects. You know, so we'll buy a scroll like the one we have in the Garden of Zendo, Uh, that's old and unique and has a particular history. And I think there's something important about having unique objects rather than everything being mass-produced or reproduced. We can go a little overboard with that. Sure I do, but it led me to be a letterpress printer, wanting to make individual unique books, not just Matt C the same books in Barnes and Noble. Wherever I are you are in the country, the store is the same, the books are the same. There's an aspect of, you know, Buddhist practice that wherever you go, any Buddhist temple in the world, perhaps you'll hear the Heart Sutra chanted, but you probably won't hear it chanted exactly the same way, or even in the same language. And while we want the commonality of our practice, I think we want to hold on to the particulars of it too. We have to hold on to the particulars of our personality. I think that's really the the main message today. That those things are not obstacles or problems in our practice. We have to figure out how to hold them and cherish them. Really, be able to see this is me. This is me. going to have to take in all our idiosyncrasies and all our complications and find a container for them. Whether that includes being a Yankee fan or a rabid anti-Yankee fan. But I'll end with a nice uh, saying that I will give... uh, Catherine, credit for She told me just before we came in here. We should uh, not worry so much about whether a dog has uh, Buddha nature. Uh, what we should be concerned about is uh, how the Buddha deals with his dog nature. <laughs> Thank you.